Hello all and welcome to another episode of A Portrait of Possibilities, where curators at the Art Gallery of Ontario interview experts to learn more about our recent acquisition, Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom. Throughout the series, we'll talk to specialists on topics as diverse as race, gender, botany, fashion, and art conservation to better understand the world that produced our enigmatic portrait of a woman of color standing outside in lavish dress, offering the viewer more questions than answers. I'm Adam Levine, Assistant Curator of European Art. And I'm Monique Johnson, Interim Assistant Curator of European Art. In today's episode, I'm talking to Dr. Charmaine Nelson, Professor of Art History at McGill University, where she has taught since 2003. Nelson's research examines the visual culture of slavery in Canada, the USA, and the Caribbean. She has published seven incredible books, and I will name a few here. She has published two important anthologies on Black Canadian studies. In 2004, she co-edited a volume with her sister, Professor Camille Nelson, called Racism, A. Eh? a critical interdisciplinary anthology of race and racism in Canada. And in 2010, she edited another anthology called Ebony Roots, Northern Soil, Perspectives on Blackness in Canada. She has championed a black art history that focuses its lens on Canada and its history with books like Legacies Denied, Unearthing the Visual Culture of Canadian Slavery, Towards an African Canadian Art History, Art, Memory and Resistance, and Slavery, Geography, and Empire in 19th Century Marine Landscapes of Montreal and Jamaica. Professor Nelson is the recipient of many, many awards and honors, and she might be familiar to many friends of the AGO because she gave the McCready Lecture in Canadian Art History at the AGO in 2016. She was also my favorite professor when I myself studied art history at McGill years ago, both because she's an amazing lecturer, but also because she's incredibly generous with her time and her mentorship. One of Charmaine Nelson's greatest academic accomplishments is her groundbreaking research on another portrait of a woman of color from the same exact historical moment as ours in the McCord Museum in Montreal. Professor Nelson showed that Francois Maupard de Beaucourt's painting, which has been called Portrait of a Negro Slave and which the McCord Museum now calls Portrait of a Haitian Woman from 1786, was likely the depiction of Marie-Thérèse Zemir, an enslaved woman owned by the Montreal painter's wife. So Professor Nelson was the first person I thought to call when we bought this painting. Professor Nelson, what are your first impressions of Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom? Okay, well, thank you so much for that introduction, Adam. So first impressions are, it struck me that she looks like a mixed race woman to me that has some degree of African ancestry, although I know we can't say that with 100% certainty because um, we don't know anything about her background at this point. But uh, one of the things that struck me that if we are indeed dealing with a woman who is of, of so-called full or part African ancestry in the period that we're dealing with in the 18th century, of course, then there was still a prolific practice of transatlantic slavery across multiple empires, including Britain, France, Spain, Portugal, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands. Um, so um, this would be then extremely rare if we're looking at a free or enslaved woman of African ancestry in this period. Why? Because one place to start then would be that when we're dealing with any form of high art portraiture, meaning oil painting, or for instance, marble or bronze busts. Um, this was a type of art from which uh, Black people were thoroughly and prolifically excluded, both as producers or artists, 
and as the sitters. And it's very rare that we find a fully finished high art portrait of this nature that has a single sitter that is a black person depicted in such um, dress and garments, if you will, uh, that signal luxury and an upper class status. We have so many images from this period that that sort of engaged the quote unquote African or African descended figure as as a trope or as an ob, you know sort of an adjacent object to show a family's a white family's wealth. We very we we just never really see them as individuals, and I think portraiture is so much the depiction of an individual. Absolutely. So there's multiple things then that you're 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 directing me towards here that we need to talk about. First and foremost, all right. So when you you reached out to me and said you know there's this portrait that you're acquiring at the AGO, uh, the title is itself a giveaway. The title that the working title now at this point is Portrait of a Lady Holding an Orange Blossom. So we can guess that this this artist Jay Scholl, um definitely knew the name of this woman because there's an interaction that's embedded in every portrait, meaning the sitter, as we call the subject of a portrait, actually had to sit with, right, be present with the artist across days, weeks, months, and sometimes years for the portrait to be finished. So of course, it implies a relationship being built, and it also implies that the artist knows who the sitter is. Now, take that a step further. Customarily, the sitter in the portrait is often also the patron, often also the person who has paid and commissioned the portraitist to give them not just a likeness, but a flattering likeness. Now where this totally falls apart is in the case of enslaved or often free black people and people of color. Why? Because when we're dealing with a historical moment and we're dealing with things like imperialism and um, colonialism and slavery, and especially if we sit with slavery for a moment, enslaved people, to be enslaved was to be chattel, was to be movable personal property. So you are yourself deemed property under the law, meaning uh, in most places you were not allowed to accrue property or were not supposed to accrue, accrue property yourself because you were seen as a thing. Now, what this stages then is that we know then on a, in a fundamental way that most black sitters that we see being depicted in any type of high art then were not the patron. And as you just related, Adam, then we have a plethora of images from aristocratic or upper class or middle class white households across Europe where they use the enslaved often black child as an appendage in um, a situation that displays individual or multiple white sitters, but the black child there or the black enslaved person was there to symbolize the white sitters wealth and colonial reach. Look, I own this object from out there that came from Africa or that came from the Caribbean. That is not what's going on in this image. So what we have to ask here is, okay, why have we lost her name? Okay, so is it that he doesn't record it anywhere on the canvas, but is there a situation, was there a situation in the 18th century where he did record her name, where she was a patron or related to the patron? For instance, the wife of the white man, let's say, or free man who commissioned the portrait. Um, and if not still, who are we dealing with that we have a woman of color in a period of heightened colonialism and imperialism who has access to a status that signifies a sense of luxury and wealth in this way, in a moment when people who quote unquote look like her, 
right? Um, people who appear to be of African descent are enslaved and impoverished. So the, so the torture then opens up a lot of questions about that. And then another layer too, Adam, is the fact that she is dressed in a way that's rather demure. She's properly covered and it's not a mm -hmm. sexual offering that we're getting. So the other thing we see in a lot of these portraits are, are, is that black women as enslaved or free black women in this period of time in high and so-called low art, so-called high and low art, what is happening to them is they're being depicted in deliberately sexually exploitative manners that is they're being hypersexualized and you referred at the top to the painting that i've been obsessed with for i guess it's two decades now bokor's portrait of a negro slave renamed portrait of a haitian woman and that poor woman marie trezemir has one breast out of her shirt and her, a smile on her face but of course the whole problem there is in knowing and recuperating the fact that bokor and his wife owned marie then what we can understand is this was likely a coerced sitting. An enslaved woman have never, would never have had the choice to say, listen, Francois, I don't want to sit for this portrait and I don't want to sit for it in this way with my breast exposed because she was literally the property of his household. So that situation is not what we're seeing here. So again, we have to ask, what is it about her and her social status, her station, and um, perhaps the fact that she may have been the patron of her own likeness that allows her to be depicted in a way that's elevated, that's more in accordance with how, to be blunt, how white women in this period were depicted, upper class white women. One, and I, I just, I wanna sort of tack onto that another way, sort of thinking about her as uh, being dressed demurely um, we've received a number of questions about a gesture that she's making with her hand where she's sort of clutching a layer of fabric um, in front of her legs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this is uh, in our conversations with costume experts, we learned that, she, that it's very common for dresses in this period to have an apron made of the same or a different fabric that lies over top than many, many layers of skirt and hooping mm -hmm. and structure. Um, so it's, and some people have asked, is this a sexual or sexualized gesture, mm -hmm. this flicking aside the apron? And um, we've been able to learn that it's, it, it's, you know, sort of totally devoid of sexual meaning. Um, it's interesting how many people have asked us that they see her sort of pulling mm -hmm. her dress aside, but in fact, that's not at all what's happening. Um, okay. So I just, I, I just, you know, it's, uh, it came up, it came to mind because it's, um, because I totally agree. We sort of see her, um, in so many ways, her, her dress and her pose are about, and maybe even the orange blossom could be about chastity and, and the sort of um, demureness, as you say. Right. And the other thing that st struck me about this too, okay, the artist has put a lot of attention on trying to create the specificity of different types of fabric, right? The sheen of the silk or the whatever, whatever that, you know, I'm not a material uh, culture expert, but there's a sheen to the, the lower bodice of the dress. And then there's a like clearly there's lace working on her bonnet and on her sleeves. So he's put a lot, uh, or I assume it's a he, it might be a woman, I guess, Jay Shull, we don't know, but the artist has put a lot of, of attention into trying to capture the different um, uh, nature of the different materiality that, that uh, uh, comprises her dress, including um, the jewels around her neck and on the air bobs, et cetera. So to me too, if I think of an, a scholar like Katie Ann Cribs, who talks about refinement in the context of slavery and imperialism um, as another way then, uh, here's the thing, 
this is a moment too where we're dealing with a lot of empires that have sumptuary laws mm. and the sumptuary laws get rolled out to police the people of color they are colonizing so it's like hold up we want to make sure we can tell who's who and part of a way we're going to do that in a world where increasingly we have um so-called miscegenation meaning sex between races right so the sexual boundaries are disappearing visually on people's bodies so how can we still make sure we know who's who part of it is you're not allowed to wear x if you are an enslaved person or if you are a so-called of the lower order right but we know that a lot of um enslaved people and free people of lower classes were like try to stop me <laughs> right so a lot of that went out the window too because it, it was so difficult to police that and and in part too and here's a complexity another layer of complexity that in a in a case like the spanish empire you have in part white the white spanish men who are marrying or taking as concubines mixed race black and white women insisting that their women sometimes who are their wives should be allowed to wear beautiful things in part because how it reflects on the mm -hmm. man's household so that these white men who are the ones who are making up these laws are also the ones who are pushing back against these laws in different capacities as much in, in terms of how it reflects on them and their household because so many of them are in relationships often coercive or outright violent with enslaved and free black women or mixed race women. So that's the thing too. Are we looking at a woman whose access to high art is perhaps coming through a white father or a white um, slave master, right? Because we do have to, no matter who she ends up being, she's a woman of color in a moment of heightened imperialism. So we have to ask, how is she accessing high art as a singular sitter of, of this type of portraiture and being depicted in such a luxurious, non-sexualizing manner, because it's totally extraordinary it, it, when you look at the other artworks in this, in, this, in this moment that depict women of color. I'm really struck by just like how Baroque and contradictory and, and suffocating the logics of racism in this imperial world are. You know, the, the, the sort of extent to which the same people advocate for sanctuary laws also wish to contradict them when it, when it applies to them and the lives that they're building. Right. Um, and this, this sort of constant vacillation about whether white colonizers conceive of people of color, um, especially black people as people or not. Mm -hmm. It just, and I, yeah, I think you raise an interesting point also about just maybe conceiving of her as, as a sort of more broadly like an imperial subject we're um, in this moment while we're still, you know, as, as maybe like an operating term while we're still not really sure very much right. about her story uh, right. or where she is, um, that it's sort of, there are broad logics that we can certainly apply to thinking about this painting as we move closer to specificity in the research process. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can I just say too, to your point about the, 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 the bizarre or lack, the bizarre logic or lack of logic of, the, the white men who were who were in power. You know, another uh, case study for this is in Jamaica in the 18th century, the white men, um, mainly planters, because they dominated uh, as politicians on uh, in the colony, um, they imposed against themselves a law limiting how much uh, wealth they could uh, leave to their mixed race families. So they were policing themselves, right? So at a certain point they were like, hold up a second, because so many of them were keeping enslaved um, 
black women and mixed race women as what they, they were calling concubines. So basically extracting all of the labor, social, sexual, domestic labor for them that you would get out of a wife, but never marrying them, basically. Okay. So of course they were having mixed race children with these women. So some of them, again, to get to your point, are they persons? Are they not persons? Some of them were like acknowledging their children uh, to a degree and it would vary. So some of them were like, okay, you're not going to work in the field anymore because I, I see that I understand that you're my son and you're my daughter. So you're not going to do field labor. Uh, others would be like, okay, so you work in the, in the house. Others would be like, no, I'm going to liberate you now in life and I'm going to send you to England to get educated. So there's all different degrees of what that acknowledgement meant. And then there were the men who were just like, no, because you're of your Africanist or partial Africanist, you're just not a human to me and you're still a slave and I still own you and I'm leaving you nothing. But there were a group of men who were like, no, on my deathbed, usually is on the deathbed, I will write into my will a house or some a pension for this woman and my children. And then, because so much wealth was being accrued, there's a group of them that pushed back and said, no, no, we're going to put a limit on this because what we're going to have in the end is a bunch of free people of color who have a lot of money and land because also they were manumitting them on their deathbeds. And they're like, that can't happen because free people want what free people, what free whites get, right? Free mixed race people want the same thing that we have and we can't have that. So again, like with same thing with the some tree laws, like it's a white man setting the rules, which the white men are also breaking strategically when it suits them. But again, that it speaks to the issue of who's a person, right? And again, the, the sad thing is it's these white men generally who had the power to, to say who's a person and who's not under the law. Yes, this strikes me as a perfect segue for thinking about um, uh, Dido Elizabeth Bell. Right. Um, and um, so, I think, you know, she's, she's come to mind a number of times because I can really conceive of sort of three images um, that come from the 1770s, 1780s that um, where we really can sort of talk about portraits with a question mark of, of women of color by European artists. And, and that's our picture. And, you know, I think you've, you've really uh, added a tremendous amount of complexity to um, the portrait of a Haitian woman, portrait of a Negro slave, portrait of Marie-Therese Zemir. Um, but so the third image is this double portrait by David Martin of Dido Elizabeth Bell and her cousin Elizabeth Murray from the 1770s. Um, today it's at Scone Palace in Scotland and um, there's a replica in London um, on the family estate that both of the, the women depicted um, lived on. And so, um, Dido was the daughter of an enslaved woman, Maria Bell, and a British aristocrat, John Lindsay. And, he was and she was raised by Lindsay's family on their estate in London alongside her cousin. Um, David Martin was hired by the family to paint the two young women. And there's been a movie made, there's been a book made. Um, there's this amazing historical amnesia. When people picture the painting, they often talk about it as a double portrait and make mm -hmm. it seem like these two cousins who share a family um, are depicted as if they had equitable lives. Um, the historical record, you know, definitely uh, um, disillusions us of this idea. Um, Dido Elizabeth Bell wasn't permitted to dine with the white people in her family or who visited. Um, there are many accounts of her being invited 
to come down to join the party after the dinner. Um, and she becomes sort of, um, sort of a celebrity, and I think maybe even an intellectual celebrity in, in Europe after she arrives there. Um, and, and we're often led to think of um, John Lindsay as, as somehow like a white hero because he takes um, his daughter and recognizes her as a daughter. Um, it's, a, you know, she actually lives with uh, the, her mother's last name, Bell. She doesn't live as Dido Lindsay. She lives as Dido mm -hmm. Bell. Um, and the painting doesn't really show them as equals. She appears in extremely um, sort of uh, deliberately exotic dress and she's behind her white cousin and she's holding uh, fruit and flowers. Um, and so she sort of fulfills this, this trope of the uh, African descended attendant. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that strikes me is there's a, a really wonderful article by Angela Rosenthal, the art historian who wrote about blushing and the way in the 18th century, you have uh, portraitists, uh, European portraitists who are heightening the blush of white men and white women in terms of it being theorized as a way to distinguish, um, in <laughs> it's really complicated. I'll try to distill this because it's important though. But they theorize that the white person's ability to blush and have that be visible on the skin is a sign of their moral transparency. Mm. So that the fact that people of colors blush is not, uh, does not register in the same way on the body uh, as a change of color on the skin necessarily is, um, is a sign of their deceitfulness. And immorality. Right. So the, the heightened rosiness of the white woman's cheeks too is something that we should not take for granted as just that's what she looked like. Of okay? course. So, so it's, a, it's also a way to, um, to reference and heighten the specificity of her whiteness as distinct from her cousin's blackness. And the other thing, of course, what Adam, where you, you brilliantly point out that she, you know, Dido is carrying a bowl of fruit, so, so natural goods, their level of, of difference between the two of them, because they could have had the two of like the artist could have chosen to have two of them sitting side by side, both reading together. Right? Well, and, even and, sitting, right? Because her yes, cousin is yes. seated and she is not. And exactly. so she is sort of in this rightful place of white leisure. Right, and behind, of course, the, the centerpiece of, of female beauty that is, of course, white female beauty in this, in this heightened Eurocentric moment, which is the white woman, right? And the white woman, of course, needs to be at leisure, which is another sign of her status. So she's the one who gets to sit and read. And Dido is the one who's still physically moving through the space, which is a sign of labor, right? Whether or not she's enslaved. And, and we know that I think her father freed her, right? So yes. Yeah, so, so it's, yeah, so we can see that the, the, the composition and the representation here are both um, being deployed to heighten the hierarchization between whiteness and blackness and white femaleness and black femaleness in this moment. I know that you've uh, written about head wrapping and, uh, and depictions of head wrapping. Do you have a sense of the, the sort of um, turban that Dido mm -hmm. is depicted mm -hmm. with, with the feathers sticking out of that? Mm -hmm. um, is this like a, a colonial fantasy or? I'm not an expert on head wrapping, but to me, this strikes me as nothing that is authentic to, for instance, the Caribbean where we know that she was born. Right. This looks to me like some Middle Eastern or Eastern 
fantasy created by white people and imposed upon black people, which is also leads to this issue of, all right, when we go back to where uh, you started earlier, Adam, talking about the group portraits that included enslaved children and enslaved black adults in the act of serving the white aristocrat or white upper class person. Often those black um, people in those portraits are dressed in what we call, what was called livery, meaning mm -hmm. almost type of um, luxurious exoticizing uniform, which heightened again um, the signal that they were domestic enslaved people, but also heightened the, the, the luxuriousness of their dress heightened the status of the white people who owned them. And Dido's turban to me speaks to that same tactic. Because it, if you look at, for instance, the prolific representations of mixed race and black women enslaved and free from the ceded islands in the same period, the 18th century, from the Italian artist Augustino Brunius, mm -hmm. the head reps don't look a thing like this. Right, and and those that, that's an interesting case study because you the seated ions at the moment he was there were of course being seated from the French to the British Empire. So you have multiple influences on the ground in those three island uh, colonies. So you probably have a, a, a creolized type of enslaved and free black dress that has both British and French influences. So again, and Brunus is is almost never representing. A black or mixed race woman without a head wrap. And again, none of them look a thing like this. So to me, this is, this is fantasy. I think thinking about the ways that, um, you know, that I, it, we're learn, you know, it's, I think it's easy to see that Dido Bell doesn't, is probably not using, it, able to access a lot of agency in how she's depicted in this portrait. Mm -hmm. um, and even though she is, sort of legally enjoys the legal status of a freed woman mm -hmm. more the more and more that we learn about her you know i think there are really important limitations on the agency that she lives her life with yeah. that can also inform how we think about our portrait of a lady with an orange blossom even if the subject is a freed woman which we have not confirmed yet right. to what extent is it you know can a woman that looks like her in the imperialized world in, have freedom and live like a fundamentally self-determining life. Absolutely. And you know what? You brought up something so important right now in um, slavery studies scholarship, Adam, is that there's a lot of debate on whether or not we should even be using the term agency to apply to any enslaved person ever. Hmm. Right? So is it it, do people, do enslaved people ever, did they ever have a moment of agency of true choice? Or was it, was it basically what I say to my students where I've come to land is no, enslaved people had a series of, of, of you know, increasingly to decreasingly poor choices to cho like choices in quotes to choose mm -hmm. between. And that's not agency, right? Because almost in some cases, for instance, every potential decision leads to a bad outcome. It's what, which outcome is the least poor for me in my life and which one will not get me killed, right? Yeah. So for instance, if you're thinking of someone resisting slavery by, by, let's say, okay, I'm going to try to run away from my slave owners. Well, that enslaved person has to think, all right, what happens if I get caught? Do I think the slave owner will whip me, perhaps whip me publicly and spectacularly in the market square? Or will they literally kill me to make an example of the fact that they don't want people to resist 
in that way. Is that agency? Like, right, someone's making a decision, but in that case, none of the potential outcomes are good or perfect because even if they quote unquote get away permanently, if they're successfully or successful, sorry, in their fugitive um, attempts, they still have to sleep with one eye open for the rest of their lives, thinking that right. their slave owner is, is still hunting them, right? And, and using apparatus, a, a printing technology, for instance, to, pr to, to prolifically print fugitive slave ads for the recapture. So again, a term like agency, what do we, what do, we do with that? Um, do we use it at all? Or do we just throw it out and come up with new terms when we think through the lived experiences of enslaved people? One thing that I've been thinking about a lot um, is sort of a white supremacist bias in how we look at these images um, because we trust the artist to be a reliable um, narrator, um, mm -hmm. that we believe that these images offer some semblance of realism and that mm -hmm. they can give us an image of who these people look like, of what these people look like. Um, one area that I see this, and it's, it's earlier, but I think it's important, is that um, the sort of great uh, Spanish painter Velazquez uh, owned an enslaved person, Juan de Pareja, and he has a portrait of Juan de Pareja um, that he painted in, I think, 1650, that's at the Met. Um, Juan de Pareja later became a, a painter himself. Uh, he was uh, freed at the end of Velazquez's life, and he includes his own sort of self-portrait in some of his paintings. And it's not uncommon within 17th century art history to say that that to say that there's a belief that um, that Juan de Pareja alters his image to appear whiter or to appear more respectable. Mm -hmm. And the bias there is that people believe that Velazquez is more reliable painter of Juan de Pareja's image than Juan de Pareja mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. As if Juan, as, as if Velazquez doesn't have an agenda to mm -hmm. darken the skin of Juan de Pareja and make him appear more quote unquote exotic mm -hmm. or to sort mm -hmm. of underlie this logic of black skin justifying uh, enslavement. For sure. And you know, to that second point too, with this idea that when a black person who was enslaved gets a chance to represent themselves, of course, they're going to want to whiten themselves. Who says? There were a lot, there's a lot of evidence in the archives that black people were fiercely uh, proud of their African ancestry. And they did countless different things to try to preserve that. For one thing, for instance, we know in part from fugitive slave ads, which I just mentioned, Adam, and again, just so, so our listeners understand what they are, those were the printed advertisements that slave owners would put either as, as posters or bills uh, um, that would be posted, at, like say in external places or a tavern or bar, or printed in a newspaper to do what? To try to recuperate an enslaved person who has, who has fled from them. And what they detailed were things like the first name, because in a slave person, you don't have a last name. They usually the age or what, whatever the approximate age they thought the person was. Um, the clothing, because enslaved people usually had one set of clothing. And um, any specific marks or scars on the person, maybe skills, because they think you're going to get away and try to like practice that skill set in order to kind of make money to survive. So why I was talking about fugitive slave ads is one thing you find in fugitive slave ads in terms of resistance and preservation of Africanness is the slave owners are having to admit that the Africans they're pursuing 
call themselves by their African names. So when really? you have African, yeah, amazing, eh? So <gasps> when you have African-born enslaved people, they'll say, I call this person John, but he calls himself this, right? So you have a disclosure there of African resistance in, term, in terms of name preservation. But we also see it, of course, in terms of dress, in terms of spirituality and religious practices like burial, right? In terms of food, in terms of um, grooming, like hair practices, et cetera. We see it all over the place. In the Canadian context, there's an interesting case where we have an enslaved black male named um, Jean Baptiste. And at the point where he gets his freedom, he changes his name to Jean Baptiste L'African, the African. Ah, I was like, Amazing. Do you, yeah. So I said to my student, do you get this? He changes his name to emphasize his Africanness. So back to the Velasquez thing, who says yes. that Velasquez's depiction is more accurate than that of the enslaved man who gets to represent himself? And it's not always the case of the enslaved person being so desirous of whiteness that they're trying to white enlighten themselves throughout their lives and white enlighten their descendants. Sometimes it's the exact opposite. They're trying to push back against that and they're trying desperately to hold on to their Africanness which is being deliberately withheld from them through things like prohibitions, laws, confiscations, material deprivation that's endemic within the institution of slavery. I think that, you know, right now there's, um, you know, I, in, the, in the midst of a groundswell of movement to um, end police violence and, and to sort of dismantle white supremacy, a lot of the messaging is that um, that non-black people need to listen to black people communicating their experience, and I think that historians need to do that with their this the black subjects that they are studying. Um, you know that this can be that there's a way that we can radicalize our history writing and history telling simply by trusting the black subjects that we are studying to tell their own stories rather than trusting the white subjects whose motivations at the time are literally to um, reiterate and reinscribe the white supremacist lie that black people are not really people. Absolutely, and our history is really guilty of not doing this, of not centering black lives, black experiences, black histories, because Adam, when you look at the field of slavery studies, one of the smallest fields uh, from which the least contributions have yet uh, emerged is art history. So the historians are at the table, the sociologists are there, the anthropologists are there, right? The linguists are there. Everybody's studying realization, et cetera, or dress or labor, language, all of it. Who's missing in action? The art historians. And why this is so appalling is because this is what people need to get. When we talk about 400 years of slavery across, again, multiple empires, this did not just entail, I, you know, I call you cargo, I put you on the manifest, I throw you in the bow of the ship, I take you and I extract labor from you. None of this could have functioned without white people hoarding access to visual representation. So I will represent you as this thing I call a chattel, as this thing I call cargo, as this thing I call a slave, as this thing I call Negro, you cannot represent yourself. So you bombard, right? You fill the visual field with these stereotypes of Africanness, which justify the enslavement of this entire race of people. Well, first you fabricate this thing called race, but you justify the enslavement of the entire group of people um, through in part their visual 
they're them being visually demeaned as not just inferior sometimes an, an inferior type of human but there we have to understand some white people literally believe that black people were another species yes species meaning they thought that a white person having sex with a black person could not actually um result in uh, offspring when you look around the empires of course there are all these things that they were calling all these people they were calling mixed race people right and coming up with names like mulatto and quadrant octrian but yet they had a group of scientists who were swearing up and down this is another species we can't even so-called mate with them so again to go back to your point we have a visual archive too that's 400 years of production that art historians are the people who have the ability to read analyze and decode these images where are we in doing this work and part of how this gets done adam and i know you know this from your education in different moments but part of how this is done is the silos in which art history um uh art historians specialize so how does this work map out oh well i'm a 19th century scholar of france i'm an 18th century scholar of britain i'm a 17th century scholar of the netherlands or dutch art now nothing wrong with that but the problem is all of those uh places all those nations in all of those centuries were not nations they're empires yes but professors don't teach them like empires in general and let me call space paid white professors teach that teach in those silos as nations as national histories of art so the person who teaches 17th century dutch won't talk about dutch holdings in the americas at that moment and won't introduce the art and artists and the representations of enslaved people and of, of white slave owners in that same moment in the 17th century dutch empire you see how that gets shut down so, so that's part of it too how we actually teach in these nat nationalistic discourses that then pretend that colonialism imperialism slavery was not happening in the moments when these european artists then are being talked about and exalted you know some of the work that i'm hoping to do i'm fairly new in my role and all of this i think always will come back to the formative education that I had with you at McGill is just thinking about following the money and mm. urging people to follow the money. And maybe the most obvious and tangible example is gold, um, which is being extracted from the Americas by enslaved black people. And it manifests in literally the gold leaf on Rococo frames. But just asking like, who, what, what, what paid for the paintings that we call great works of Western art. Right. You know, at the very least, like the Dutch golden age, that's fascinating. Like mm -hmm. where, where is the gold coming from that's paying for this? Right. Um, right. And, and trying to think it's not just that the paintings are funded by it, but often the gold frames I think are this very tangible link to black enslaved labor and yes. resource extraction from colonized lands. For sure. And, and I've heard, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget which scholar has already worked on this or scholars, but I've heard scholars say like, we want to throw that term out golden age because mm -hmm. golden age for whom? It wasn't oh, yeah. golden age for the people who were being enslaved in the Dutch empire. So, so, you know, to, to really think about too, how we're naming things too, and practices and moments in, in, um, especially in the discipline of art history and the way that that further then centers whiteness. One thing that you mentioned earlier um, that I'd love to ask you to expand on is just that fruit is sort of this common thread in all three paintings. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Marie Therese is uh, holding a tray of fruit and you've worked extensively on the different kinds of fruits that are on the tray. 
Um, um, Dido Bell is also holding a tray of fruits and the portrait of a lady, um, you know, she's holding an orange blossom, um, which we have like uh, confirmed with the botanist is indeed an orange blossom. And while in the 18th century, that's sometimes a symbol of chastity or of marriage and fidelity, I'm struck by the fact that it still is very much legible mm -hmm. as an exotic uh, fruit variety. Um, and that it's right. really impossible to pretend that she, it's, it's not the same thing as when white women are depicted in the 18th century holding an orange blossom. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Can, thank you for that too, because here's the thing. We see this pattern of the association between black female bodies and vegetation or, um, or plants go right up to our moment. And I, uh, my master's, when I did my master's at Concordia, there's a lot of Canadian 20th century images done um, by artists, I think like um, uh, Lauren Harris Jr. has one, Negris in the studio, and that's the name of her work, where he, he feels like he has to put a potted plant beside this unclosed black woman. Um, and of course, a Dorothy Stevens colored nude where she's standing in front of this very fake looking tropical back, uh, backdrop. And of course, Dorothy Stevens is a Toronto based painter who was often painting models in Canada. So I think part of what happens to what we always have to question is, are the use of plants and specifically tropical plants a way to externalize the black body from the West? So mm -hmm. at what point do black people get to be Canadian? At what point, so, so are we looking at, so here's a question too. We don't know where this portrait was conceived, where it was completed. We don't know where she sat for this. But if she sat for it, let's say in France, um, why did the portraitist feel the need to include a tropical plant in his depiction of a woman in France, right? And again, part of it, what we see across history is it's a way to always point at the woman of color or the woman, a man of color's body as foreign, regardless of if they've been in France, in Germany, in Britain, in the Netherlands for four generations. You never get to be of that Western space, right? And that's part of what's going on um, today in, in the, the, the great tumult and, and um, uprisings in the streets, right? Is uh, Part of the connection is between the, the failure of citizenship for black people is, is are constantly being, uh, being positioned as not of the spaces which we inhabit, right? That dislocation. So I think we need to think seriously when we find out where she is from and where this portrait was, was actually conceptualized and produced, then how is this orange blossom and the orange plant behind it functioning for her? And is it indeed um, trying to bring us back to or signal a tropical location, um, not just as her heritage, but her present, as opposed to where she actually sat for the painting. By way of conclusion, um, mm -hmm. if you'd be comfortable, I wonder like if you have, I think there are two different desires that I'm interested in. What do you want, or what do you hope that black viewers can learn or experience by seeing this painting in on the walls in the AGO, and what do you hope white visitors can learn from seeing the painting in the AGO? Oh wow! Okay, so 
I think in a lot of ways, Adam, I want them to learn the same thing. So first of all, I want people to understand because often people don't understand that there are historical high art images of black people who are not um, being exploited in in outright exoticizing or being exploited in outright hypersexualized manners, right? But I also want them to realize that a portrait like this is the exception, not the rule. Right. So I don't want them to go away thinking, oh, look, black people or women of color were always represented really beautifully in wonderful clothing and everything's okay and slavery must not have been that bad. Because a lot of people look at her, will read her as black or partially black, whether or not that's true. Mm -hmm. And they will situate it in a period of transatlantic slavery, which most people will know very little about. And they'll want to create a narrative of how everything was better than they've been told. So I want them to hit pause on that. And, right. and first of all, think about the fact that we're looking at an exceptional portrait in many ways. And one of the other layers here too, Adam, we didn't talk too much about, is the directness of her gaze. Mm. And the fact that she has, a, to me, a rather indistinct expression. It's not a full smile, but it's not one of displeasure either. So I, I read it as her being a willing participant in the sitting, but she's not, you know, giving us a toothy grin or anything like that. Whereas Marie Therese Zemir in Bocour's work is like an outright smile. Right. So he's, he's, he is depicting her as being at peace with, at one with, and, and actually the force behind her self-exposure and offering of her body to us, right? Because she's smiling while she's doing it. So if people don't understand that he owned her and that that was a course course of situation, then they come away thinking, oh, well, she's offering her body to us and she's smiling. So so one thing too that people need to understand, a portrait is not a photo. Right. Because Adam, I'm telling you, some people don't get that. You know, I was in like a workshop with academics, not other art historians, but I'm telling you, one of the other historians was like, well, she's smiling. And so she was smiling in the sitting. I'm like, oh my God, is this where we're at? I'm like, do you not understand? This is not a time, time, this is not a time-based medium in the same way as a photo. When we have a photo, we know the person actually had that expression for at least several seconds in their life. But even that doesn't mean that's how they felt because there's a lot of photos too. There's a lot of photos, for instance, in the USA, Brazil, and Cuba right, where we have a plethora of photos of enslaved people. Why? Because the three of them, the three of those states abolished slavery so late, right? right. 1865 in the USA after the Civil War, 1886, I believe, in Cuba, 1888 in Brazil. But there's a plethora of photos, especially of enslaved Black women caring for white babies, all right? And that's another story we have to have another day, another I conversation. Look forward to making the... <laughs> All, all of the conversations you want to have. Oh, yeah, I want conversations. To you know, but there's a plethora of photos like that where the woman is smiling for the moment. You cannot interpret from that that she was happy being enslaved in the household and happy being um, a kind of supplement to the parental, um, you know, memorialization of the preciousness of the white baby, even though she's smiling in the, in the seconds of that the photo was taken. So how much less can we say what this woman actually was feeling um, as being accurately conveyed by the expression in the portrait. When we know, again, portraits like this were conceived over days, weeks, months, sometimes years. So we have an inkling, though, that because she's represented as such an upper-class, refined lady, I think is an appropriate term, like a gentlewoman, that she hopefully had a hand in the patronage of her own likeness, hopefully. But we have to say hopefully too, because again, so many people of color at this period 
did not have the wherewithal, the homes, the access to high art in order to commission their own likenesses and to, through that commission, demand that the likenesses be flattering. So we have to think about very seriously if she was the, um, the patron of her own likeness. That's a big question that all audiences need to think about. Um, I think for white people, what I want to say is, um, again, to, to hit pause on your tendency to make an image like this make you feel better in terms of histories of slavery, because I want mm. to tell you it's exceptional. And for black people, I want to say, you know, it's, I can see how that is heartening for a lot of black viewers to think, wow, there were people of color, perhaps a mixed race or a, a so-called fully black or fully African woman in a historical moment of trans-like slavery, um, whether or not she's free or enslaved, who had access to refined things, to luxurious things in a way that kind of um, indicates that she had a middle or upper class status. Because I think for a lot of black people, we don't get to see images like this of ourselves and of our ancestors. So there's kind of two gazes coming at this image. And I think there's two, two different um, things we have to be conscious of then in that sense. Thank you so much. I am always happy to talk to you because I learn so much every time I talk to you. And I wanna thank you again for, um, for your time and for your insight, because I think that you've really helped us to add new layers of understanding to this painting and what it can mean, what it might've meant and what it can mean for us right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think it's really important that, uh, that more people um, hear from you because I think that the work that you're doing is really just essential and important and everyone should know about it. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Adam. And I hope this doesn't get edited out, but I just want to say that Adam was one of my favorite students ever. 